This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. We're starting a brand new series today called Bad Girls. And before we get started in that, I do want to invite you out tonight. If you've been attending our church but have not attended uh, Next Steps, we'd love to have you. It's at 5 p.m. at our downtown campus. It's uh, just an opportunity for you to hear about who we are, what our mission is, what do we believe, and really just see a path forward for a potential next step for you with our church. Uh, If you're wondering, hey, it's 5 o'clock. That's normally when we eat. Listen, we we bring in food. Uh, If you've got kids, we have child care. Whatever the reason that you might not be able to attend, we just try to take those and disarm them so that it's accessible for everybody. So that's tonight at 5 p.m at our downtown campus, Next Steps. Now, today, as we start this series, Bad Girls, I want to just kind of begin by dealing with that topic of of bad versus good. Some of y'all are are familiar with those terms because your your mom and your daddy told you 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 don't need to be with none of those bad girls, right? Some of y'all are like, but those are the girls I like. I was like... who was drawn to him. Just, you know, Jesus one time is, is really, it's such an odd moment. He deals with the idea of being bad or being good because somebody actually calls him good teacher. You would uh, imagine that would be a compliment, right? Good teacher. But he responds in a way that I, it, I think is often could be viewed as not being in kind to the compliment. In Mark 10, verse 18, he responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? You know, there's no such thing as a good person. As a matter of fact, the gospel of Jesus doesn't work if there is a good person. We're all here because we're not good. And we need the one who was good, who was sacrificed on our behalf. So there is no such thing as a good girl. That means all y'all bad girls, okay? Just all of you. Because according to Jesus, if you're not good, or if you're not God, you're not good. So throughout this series, what we're going to do through um, bad girls is we're actually going to go um, into the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into the narrative of the Bible. And we're going to pull out some stories that actually are redemptive in nature that show us some bad girls and each week I'm going to invite some of our quote unquote bad girls all right some of our girls that are on staff to help share through those stories and to give us insight into them but before we get started today I really want to address kind of the elephant in the room when you say I'm going to have some of our, our our female staff members to share the stage to actually be a part of a message And that's, how do we, as a church, how do we navigate girls in ministry? How do we do that? 
There's two primary camps for this. There's the camp of complementarianism, then the camp of egalitarianism. Let me just kind of go through what they believe. Complementarians believe that men and women have been both created equally in the image of God, but have different complementary God-ordained roles and identities in both the church and the home. So they're going to believe that uh, our complementarian is going to say that, that the image of God is present on the earth, but it's present in the complementary nature between a male and a female. That God created them uniquely different with uniquely different roles and identities. Complementarians believe in what would consider to be called male headship, that men should lead in the home and the church as representatives of Christ and for Christ's good. That's not a uh, patriarchal kind of thing where we have the power and we do things for ourselves as men. It's really a, I'm here to embody Christ and to serve Christ that within my family or within the church, Christ would be served. If you grew up in a mildly conservative church, that's how you understand the world. But for some of you, that language feels remarkably foreign. Uh, If you grew up in what would be considered a more modern liberal church, kind of theological faith community, a modern Methodist church, some Lutheran church, some Presbyterian church, then that kind of talk might actually seem foreign to you because you might have grown up in what's considered to be an egalitarian environment. Egalitarians, on the other hand, different from uh, complementarians. Egalitarians believe that not only have men and women been created equally in God's image, that they have been gifted equally as well. No role or position in the church is limited to just one gender, which is why some of you would have come out of faith traditions where you had lead pastors who were women. And that would have been really from a perspective of egalitarianism. Now, the, the tough thing is that as we approach the church is also how we approach the family. And so the, the question is, okay, if, if that's how it works in the church. What does it look like in the family? And egalitarians would assert that healthy marriages are built on consensus, shared authority, and not unique headship. So we kind of work together in more of a democratic process. We come to consensus. We come to agreement. And what's been tough as this has become a very broad narrative within church leadership is that it's often polarized and and tribal in the way that we answer. We encamp on one side or on the other, and we entrench in those perspectives without thinking about, could it really be different? Is there another way? So I want to really just give you three principles that are important for us when we navigate this. So like complementarians... This is for us as a church. This is long. It's intentionally long. We believe that while men and women have equal value to God, equal value to the church, and equal value to each other, men and women have uniquely different God-given identities and priorities within the church and within the home. That we are equal in value, but we have different identity. There, there are identities that I, as a man, cannot have. I, I mean, you can Bruce to Caitlin all you want to, but I will never be able to bear a child. And that is an identity that is powerful. It is meaningful. It is important. And I have seen it change people's lives. I've seen women move from 
I, I love my career. I'm sold out to my career. When all of a sudden they have a child, and what happens? I don't know that I can go back to work. I just, I, I feel like I just want to stay home. I, I've never seen a man, you know, about three months after having a baby. I just don't think I can do it. It's an identity. And the way that our culture deals with the differences is that we actually reduce the differences back to the places of commonality. We minimize the difference. This is how we deal with gender. It's how we deal with race. Let's just reduce it. Let's minimize it. But what makes us different makes us stronger. And in the culture that is trying to minimize the differences, I want you to understand that I think the correct biblical posture is to celebrate the differences. You know, often the way we talk about equality is subversive to, I believe, what God is trying to do through the complementary nature. Because what we do when we talk about equality is we subversively assert uniformity. We're all the same. And that is practically a lie. We are not all the same. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes to great lengths to explain this. It uses the body of Christ, that we are hands and feet and eyes, and that we have different identities, and that while we are all different and gifted different, that we have within that there is different priority given to the hand and the foot and to the eye, and we would not be the whole without each one. Go all the way back to the garden. God creates man, puts him in the garden, and gives him a job. If you pay attention in Genesis chapter 2, that job is go out and take control of all of it. The word that's used in the narrative of Scripture is take dominion. Go dominate it. Go be the leader. But then there's a problem that's, it occurs before sin, which means that there are problems in our life that aren't necessarily related to sin. And God goes, listen, he's alone and that's not good. Let's make woman, and what's the identity here? He goes, let's make woman to be a helper. So there's, in the very beginning, different. Love by God, purpose, equal value, but different identities. There's Adam who's, go lead, go take charge. And there's Eve who's no, you know what, you need, you're there to, to help and support and raise up. From the very beginning, there's that identity of leadership and that identity of nurturing. And if you pay attention to those, they actually are both leadership giftedness. They just come from a very different place. So like a complementarian, we believe equal value to God, different identities. But like an egalitarian, number two, we believe that both men and women are created and called equally into ministry. And when I say called equally, I mean that there's equal value, there's equal importance, that the church equally needs men and equally needs women. I just want to say it in a place like this, that I want our church to be a place where young people are called into the ministry. I want there to be some young women who see what's going on in the body of Christ and say that what's in me, what God is doing in me, meets the needs of what's in this world. God, you've called me to 
serve and to go make a difference. And I want it for young men, for young men to say that I'm here to call. I want, them, I want this to be a place. You see this in, in Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to understand what he's saying here. He's talking about our identity as children of God. He's not saying there's no differences. You're all, you're all children. You're all a part of the family. I mean, I've got, I've got a girl and I've got a couple boys. And when I look at them, I love them the same. They have equal access to me. They have equal place in our family. But they have different identities. And you might be saying, well, what about leading in the church? Is that, is that a part of the way that a woman might be gifted? Well, according to the Bible, it is. Romans is a good example of that. And Romans, Romans is the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. It is the most complex and most concise presentation of the gospel of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Scholars call it the fifth gospel. And who did he hand it to? What would happen is they'd write a letter, the apostles would, and they'd hand it to somebody who was going to that church. And then when they got into the church in a meeting like this, they would stand in the assembly and they would read it to the people. Who read it? It was a young woman named Phoebe. That's who that was entrusted to for the very first time. Romans 16 opens by talking about her and describes her within the church as a deacon. And just a few paragraphs down, you meet a young woman named Junia who is commended to the church in Rome as an apostle. A woman apostle. So apparently in the emerging New Testament church, there were women who were leading. What about in a moment like the sharing the, the, the gospel, being present on a stage, being someone who would have influence in sharing that in a crowd? D.A. Carson famously said that issue was settled at the tomb. When Jesus came out of the tomb, the first people that he appeared to was a group of women, and he sent them back to the men and said, y'all go tell them that I'm no longer dead, I'm alive. The first evangelists to declare the resurrected Jesus were a group of women. But if you're faithful to the text, there are some things that are problematic. And I want to acknowledge that. And one of the verses that's so difficult to parse is 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. In this, in 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul's writing, young Timothy, Timothy is pastoring a church that they planted in Crete, which is just south of Italy. It's, it was a very complicated cultural environment. There were a lot of cultural influences. The, the Cretans were just difficult people. They were, they're described in the text as being stubborn and hard-headed and difficult. I don't know if y'all know anybody like that. My wife does. My wife does. And he's writing in 1 Timothy 2, he's giving them advice. And he says this, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, to assume, or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And there are a lot of conservative churches that would call on that verse that would say that a woman should never get up here and do what I'm doing. But I want to just spend a moment disarming that for a second. And I want you to see, okay, 
First of all, the, the first thing that's tough to understand about is that phrase, to assume authority over, is a, is a very unique Greek word in the original text. As a matter of fact, it's only found in one place, and that's right here. And scholars almost unanimously say, listen, we don't know what that word means. And so any English translation is just trying to make sense out of the parts of that word. We don't know it. We know it has to do with power differential. It's kind of about all we've got. So what we are real clear is I don't permit a woman to teach. What does that mean? Well, you might think that that's doing what I'm doing, but it's not. As a matter of fact, in the Corinthian letters, the Apostle Paul gives clear direction for how a woman should exhort the church and how a woman can prophesy in the church which are different ways of looking at what I'm doing right now. The phrase that's used here to teach is actually to be a teacher. What does a teacher do in a classroom? Well, a teacher does what I'm doing, but they also guide and discipline. And what he's saying is that, no, listen, Timothy, it is, that is that role, the unique person who's guiding and directing and disciplining, that is, that is not for a woman. So as we read the Bible, it's comprehensive counsel. Y'all listen to me. I don't want to just take one verse. Out. I want to look at the Bible from the beginning to the end. We're not going to dismiss it. We're going to elevate it. As we read the Bible, it's comprehensive counsel affirms these things. And so this is how I would put it. Number three, we believe in the governing principles of submission and male headship. We believe in those because those are consistent through the entire Bible. Now, what does that mean, submission? It's something that if you grew up in church, that's been weaponized at times. Submission is almost always talking about mutual submission. That there's somebody and somebody, and we're submitting to each other. There's different priorities because there's different identities. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 5, which talks about how the wife submits to the husband, begins in verse 21 by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the rule for Christian households starts out by saying, no, it's not just about one, y'all are both supposed to submit. And then the passage goes on to explain what that looks like. See, this is where I think it's very tough to kind of camp out on that egalitarian side because what do they say? They say that a good marriage is built on consensus. But the reason that we're called to submission is a call to submission implies disagreement. It means that somebody is going to disagree with somebody and it's going to be wholehearted. You ain't going to come to a middle ground meeting place and at times it's going to have to be who's the person that has the final say? Which is why you go to the very next verse and it says, Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And this is a principle, this idea of, of male headship that is there, it was there in the garden. Adam is the head. He's given the authority as leader. Adam is, is, is alone. It's not good. He's given Eve as a helper. Their complement begins to, to fill the earth with the image of God. 
And then you go through the Bible. This is, so, it's so prominent. You, you'd even go to the, here's just a simple illustration. The feeding of the 5,000. This miraculous miracle where Jesus takes a little boy's lunch. You know that the only people who are counted in the crowd are the men. Why? Because the bread that was broken would have been handed to the men who would then serve their families. Guys, you need to understand that this call, some of y'all a few, few minutes ago when I talked about the, the good identity, the, the powerful identity, the honored identity as, as, a, as somebody who can bear children, some of y'all women were going, listen, you, you don't know the pain that comes with that identity. I would say in the same way, you don't know the pain that comes with being the one that God has charged to be accountable before him for how my family goes. Go back to the garden. What happened? Eve gets tricked, right? She's the one who's tempted. She's the one who, the Bible says literally that she handed the fruit to Adam. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, who does God hold accountable for that? Is it Eve? 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Why does God hold Adam accountable? Because he gave Adam the authority. Adam was the head. He was in charge. God gave him the authority. Therefore, he holds him accountable. And this is a principle that's all throughout the Bible, and we're not going to shuck it or run away from it. We believe in it. We're going to affirm what the Bible teaches. So here's where we are. Equal value to God. Different identities. The call of God on a man and a woman is of equal value to the church. But there are some unique positions in life that belong to different identities that are given from God. So I'd say this. If the full image of God is in the complement of men and women, the church loses when she won't listen to our sisters. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to invite some of them to speak to us. And today I get the privilege of introducing uh, my favorite bad girl, my wife. There'd be no, um, there'd be no Vortex Church without her. For the past decade, she stood by my side. She's She's prayed over me when I, I didn't know that I could keep doing this. She's fought battles that some of you have never seen her fight. And I invited her today to come and talk about a story from the Old Testament that means a lot to us as a family. And it's a story of a bad girl. And her name is Gomer. Would y'all welcome my wife, Amanda. Well, I'm excited I get to share today. Um, even more, it's just an honor to be able to be asked to be up here. Um, Kevin has taught me a lot in life. And um, I know he shared last week um, 
you know, y'all don't know kind of all the battles he fights um, as well, just to, to be up here. And um, I'm so thankful for being taught vulnerability and humility through him. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful. Thank you for trusting me to be up here. Um, so I get to talk to you about Gomer. And uh, while Gomer is one of those characters that you're probably like, who? That's not anyone that I remember hearing about growing up. And, um, you know, me either, um, quite frankly. But it is a story that I 100% can identify with. Um, it is a story of brokenness and um, there's just a lot that I can relate and I want to get into it a little bit here but basically in the Old Testament um, Gomer is in the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. He um, loved Jesus. He served God. He did everything that he could to honor the Lord and God told him to marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute. Okay, well, I know you're sitting there saying, well, you said you could identify with that. Um, I can assure you I don't have that battle. <laughs> but, um, but I want you to, when we look at this, I want you to understand that just because um, they're saying like that she's a prostitute and things like that, there, there's more to that story. And there's also like in this time, the Israelites were working, they were um, kind of going to other gods. They were being unfaithful to the Lord. And so it's a great representation of what was going on um, in Israel at the time. And so God used this story through Hosea. So in Hosea 1, 2 through 3, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God instructed Hosea, I want you to marry this woman, this one right here, the one that's battered, bruised, the one who um, has all of the flaws, all of the um, what people are calling her. I want you to marry that one. And I'm going to be honest, like I have two sons, and there is no way in the world that I'll look at them and say, I want you to marry a promiscuous woman. Like I don't want that for them. <laughs> um, but God knew, God knew there was something that he was going to do great through this story. And so whenever you think about her and her story, I want you to uh, try to identify it with yourself. That yes, while we may not struggle with um, slavery or prostitution, I want you to understand that we are a slave to other things like sin. Okay, so for me in particular, fear is that when I look at that, like uh, God instructed Kevin to marry a fearful woman a woman who struggles with insecurity, a woman who struggles saying I'm not enough. Um, and so when I want you to look at that, I want you to see yourself in it and see what you may struggle with and what you identify with. But in the story of Hosea and Gomer, they, um, so he, he buys her um, out of slavery. They actually end up having three kids. They're instructed to name them and their meanings of their name are no mercy, not my people, and not loved, which to me 
when I read it, I was just like, that is so far from the heart of the Lord. Like, why in the world would they name their children in ways that are so contradictory to God's heart? No mercy, not my people, and not loved. So after having those kids, what what happens in the story next is that uh, Gomer, you think, like, she's got this better life now. Like, she's been rescued from slavery. But in fact, she actually goes back to it. She goes back to it. Um, she goes to um, being an adulteress. She, uh, there's a lot that, that she goes back to and struggles with. And I think for us, if you can identify with that, I know for me in particular, I can. So there's been times that I've been fearful and, and I've struggled and God freed me of it. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm moving back to the lies, moving back to what, you know, I used to know. Um, and moving back towards fear. And that's exactly what she did. So in Hosea 3, 1 through 2, God says, The Lord said to me, Go show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Now understand, she left him. Okay, she left him. She gave him every reason to say, I'm done. Right there. Like, but God says, no, I want you to go buy her back. I want you to pay for her again. And isn't God, doesn't God do that? Jesus, God sent his son, Jesus, and he paid that price for us. That we were slaves and God can send his son and paid for us. And, and I just think it's interesting because you know what? Like she was already his wife. She was already paid for, but he still paid for her. And God, and Jesus did that as well. He paid for us. So why does God ask Hosea to do this? Because it seems ridiculous that you are going to pay for a woman that's already yours. The reason why he asked him is because Hosea's love for his wife showed the people of God how God loved them as they ran from him. It showed how God loved them. So I can identify with this 100%. There is so much of my story that lines with that story. And while yes, I did not, um, I can't identify to the very specific things, but I can tell you that I've struggled in my life with a lot of different sin issues. And one of those being specifically fear. So there was this moment when me and Kevin were dating that we went and saw, um, went to this music festival. It's the Beaufort Music Festival, and uh, it was something we looked forward to. And I remember this time that literally wrecked my world, continues to wreck my world. But there was a band playing, and they had a ton of people um, around this band, and there was one specific girl right in the middle of the crowd and the girl there was just dancing. She didn't care what people thought. She was just dancing freely. She was just in the moment knowing that she was enough and that she was just she was just it. Like it didn't matter. And what's funny is like there was people around her just ridiculing her, like laughing at her, like look at her. Um, and and I remember what they saw was not what I saw. Because what I saw was freedom. And I literally just sobbed. 
I had to walk away because I couldn't, I couldn't handle seeing it. I had to sit there on the side of the street just bawling. I cried and I cried and I'm like, why is this moving me so much? And it was because God was whispering in my heart, I want that for you, Amanda. I want that freedom. I want that. That is who you are. And you know, I don't know what happened, but at some point I started letting fear write the story in my own life. And I think too often we do let fear write our story. We let our sin write our story and identify who we are. And I don't remember it always being that way. In fact, like I came across um, and and remembered a story um, early on in childhood where I, um, I was a giver. Like I loved to give like anything I had when I was little, I wanted to give you. If you walked, to my, if you were at my house, you were going to leave with a book or something. Um, and it was my dad's birthday, and we were celebrating at my grandmother's, and um, I didn't know what I could give him. I was like, I don't have anything. I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm six. I don't have a thing to give you. Um, but I remember doing. Um, I danced. I danced in their yard, and I remember that moment saying, "I'm enough." Like I'm enough. That girl is free. That girl had identified herself with freedom before the world told her she was not. That girl was the girl I saw at the music festival. And for some reason, I left that. I knew I was enough there. I knew, like I knew I could dance for my, for I could dance and be enough. That now I need to tell you, like, I don't dance. Like, that is not, like, I didn't grow up dancing. That was not my thing. I've never taken a class. I was probably terrible. But I didn't care because I knew I was enough. And in that moment, I was. And it brings me to a verse in 1 John 4, 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When I was dancing as a six-year-old, feeling free, I knew I was enough because I was loved and I like embraced that love and I didn't like, I didn't have that fear. And you know, I think we, there's something to be learned about that because there is in the Bible when he talked, Jesus talks about having childlike faith. We need to understand that we need to have that childlike faith that we need to let a childlike faith override sinful fears. We need to let that childlike faith override our sinful fears because you know what? There are times that that we were free, but then the world told us something different. God identified us as free, but something along the way we've believed some kind of lie. And that's what happened with me. Because I didn't realize I wasn't free until I went to that music festival and I saw that girl dancing. And I wanted to be her. Not realizing I was her. But I had believed some lies and I was not, like I was a slave to those lies. So what does Hosea's love for Gomer teach us? Well, I think what's important to understand in that story, going back to that story, that like even if we run away, 
God shows you that you're worthy of love. God shows us that we are worthy to be loved. My name actually means worthy of love. Isn't it funny knowing that, like, my name literally means the thing that I'm going to struggle with, that I feel like I'm not worthy of love. But we, even though we run away, we are still worthy of God's love. So I want to go back to the names of those kids. The names of Gomer and Hosea's kids meant no mercy, not my people, and not loved. No mercy, not my people, and not loved. You know why they were named that? Because God was going to transform them and rename them. There is somewhere where we've taken on an identity that's not ours, that God never gave us. And let's see, in Hosea 2.23, it says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those people called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. In fact, in Romans 9, it actually even says the one called not my loved is now called beloved. So what identity have you taken on that God has not given you? Is there an identity? Are you identifying as an addict? Are you identifying as someone struggling with something? Are you identifying with fear? Are you listening to the lies that fear is going to tell you? Are you listening to what God has told you? Because you've been redeemed, and God has called you redeemed. God has called you forgiven. God has called you beloved. You can be redeemed by his love. I would not be up here today because that girl watching at the music festival, that girl was a slave to fear. That girl would not be up here speaking of God's goodness and God's love because that girl believed in lies. What lies are you believing about yourself that God has not told you? Because God has told you you're redeemed. God has called you beloved, and you can be transformed by him. I'm going to let Kevin finish up here. Wasn't that good? Give me a Every once in a while, I'm going to get like that preaching. Yes. You know, finger comes out. I'm, it's, I'm used to that. I get that a lot in other environments. <laughs> I want you to think about this story. I want you to ask yourself, how do we know this story? How do we know it? It's an important question to ask. Because the reason we know the story of what happened with Jose and Gomer was because Hosea told it. You know, so many times we run from our brokenness. We run from our failures and frailty. And in doing so, what happens is we deny in our story the weaknesses. But when we do that, we also handicap our story from displaying the power of God. Hosea was willing to tell a broken story because it put on display the love that God has for his people. So fast forward about 25 or 30 years. 
Hosea's sitting around. They've had not just kids, but now grandkids. And the grandkids say, Grandpa, will you, will you tell us that story again? Will you tell us how you met Grandma? Well, you know, I, I didn't really know her. But God, God spoke to me, and he really had picked her out for me. When he, when he did, I, she wasn't in a very good place. So I went and got her, got her out and helped her. And, and we thought it was good. I thought it was good for a while, and it was. And we had, we had your mom and we had your dad. But then a few years later, she ran away. And I, I'd never known hurt like that. I'd, I'd never been broken like that. But I didn't run from God. I, I leaned into it. And I kept leaning into it. And eventually I heard God say to do something that I didn't, I didn't even know if I could do it. God told me, I want you to go find her. And I want you to go buy her back. Bring her back home. And your, your grandma, she was in a bad place. I went and got her. I brought her home. And we spent these last years learning to love each other. How to, how to be married and how to have a family and I, I can tell you, I love her with all my heart never underestimate the generational impact of your faithfulness to God when you go through something that's not easy I want you to know that there are kids and family members around that are looking at you and taking notes and at some point, you got to ask yourself, what kind of story am I telling them? Am I writing a story in trials of selfishness and self-idolatry? Or have I chosen to be faithful to God? It's important. Deuteronomy 5 says that as a parent, when we sin, that our sins can be visited on our kids. I don't think that that's a, an evil punishment. I think it's just practical. Listen, you, you make church kind of optional for you and your, your family. You watch your kids opt out later on in life. There's a consequence to having a sinful culture in your family and it will be visited on your kids. But in Deuteronomy 5 verse 9, the Bible says that for those that are faithful, that there will be love that God will show on their family to thousands of generations. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is, it is a family-altering decision. You might be asking, well, why would I stay faithful to God when it gets that tough? Why? Why would I do that? 
Why would, why, when, it, when all of my life feels broken and I feel like things are being ripped out of my hands and I don't, I don't even know what end is up, why would I stay faithful to God? The answer to that is right here in this story. Because the story of Hosea and Gomer is not some story out of the Bible from the ancient times. It's a story about you. You are Gomer. You sold yourself into sin. It might be like Amanda said, the the sin of fear. It might have been the sin of an addiction. It might have been the sin of unfaithfulness. I don't know what it is, but you, just like me, sold yourself into sin. And God was not content to let you stay there. And so God, just like Hosea, walked into that room and said, that's my wife. I'm going to buy her. You tell me what the price is. God walked in and said, that's my son. That's my daughter. I'm going to buy them. I don't care what the price is. And the one who had control of you said, the price is greater than you're willing to pay. No, it's not. You tell me the price is your son. God purchased you out of your rebellion with the price of his son. Why would I stay faithful to God when it's that hard? Because his faithfulness to you demands your faithfulness to him. And I promise you that just like Hosea, your faithfulness in the middle of a difficult season has the potential to change everything. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.